1: Almost surely have a plan. It's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view. Find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Where would we be without THC? We know the lion to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we The Higher Sight Chat Show. Greg Carl Wood and Company.
2: All right, Higher Side Chatters, brace yourself for an off the radar ride today as we penetrate the snickers, stigmas, and social awkwardness around a topic that I think you'll find is much more significant than you thought it was. And I'm sure many of us would admit that a culture can find itself in weird places and human beings have an uncanny tendency to blindly go with the herd that makes me think those advocates for origin theories that involve engineering us for obedience might be onto to something. Because there's no other way I can rationalize a long tradition of cutting off parts of baby penises all the way into 2018 without ever so much as a real conversation about it. Who decided this was okay, how did it get to be the norm, and why, like many important topics we consider here, do so many people spout off a few regurgitated bullet points in support of it, suspiciously as if it was implanted right in their brains. Well, a vigorous and lengthy golf clap is in order for today's guest filmmaker Brendan Murata for tackling this uncomfortable conversation head-on, with his recently released and now award-winning film, American Circumcision, which breaks down the arguments from both sides of the situation, examines the history, and explains the gory details and data we should all be fully aware of before we make up our minds about it. Like my teacher said in sex ed class so long ago, if you can't talk about it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. So here to talk about everything you ever wanted to know about circumcision, and probably more, Brendan, my man, Welcome to The Higher
0: Side. Thank you. That was a great introduction.
2: Thanks. I I like to have fun with those intros, but I am really psyched and thankful that you're here. When I heard about this film, I thought, you know, that's interesting, but I'm not sure it can carry a full episode of this show because how much is there to really know? And well, when I watched it, I was definitely impressed, learned way more than I expected to, and I actually got emotional about it despite my heart being two sizes too small. And maybe we should ease into this one with that classic cliche question of how did you find yourself making a film on the subject of circumcision?
0: So I think like most Americans, it was not a topic I'd thought about a lot before. It was something that I just sort of thought, well, there's nothing I can do about that now. So why think about it? It seems a little uncomfortable. It seems a little weird. And besides, what is there really to know about this issue? And at the time I was in Los Angeles, I was working as a filmmaker, and I was sort of focused on escapist things like horror films and sci-fi and you know stuff I got paid for essentially. And at the same time, I started going through a period in my life where I was looking at a lot of things that happened to me in early childhood that might have affected me later on. And I was reading a lot of the you know psychology stuff about how early life events impact you later, and I would run across this in those readings, and I thought, well, You know, there's nothing I can do about that. Now, it made me uncomfortable because I think like a lot of people, I want to feel like I'm in control of my life and I can change, you know, my beliefs and my patterns and all of these other things. But that was something I couldn't really change. So I just kind of pushed it out of mind. And then later I have a meditation practice and the meditation that I practice is just being present with whatever is there. It's nothing mystical, not trying to achieve any strange states of mind. It's just whatever comes up in my consciousness, I be present with it. And during a meditation, I had the word circumcision come into my mind. And I had this really cold sensation in the body. It was this very sort of uncomfortable feeling and it felt like all my energy drained down to my belt. And it happened a couple times during this meditation. I thought that's really weird. Like Some part of my consciousness clearly wants me to look at this, so I'm gonna pay attention to this and actually do some research. And one of the first things I found is something that we cover in the documentary, something called foreskin restoration, which is where men take the remaining skin that they have and slowly stretch it over time. And this doesn't get back all the nerve endings of the foreskin, but it does get back some of the form and function and creates a covering of that part of the body again. And so I thought, that's really weird. But all my life I've been told there's nothing you can do about this. And clearly there's something you can do about this. So what else have I been told that isn't true? And I started having what one of my interview subjects called the obsessive epiphany, which is the moment when you realize there's more to an issue than what your culture has told you. And you start researching everything about it, You know, reading every book, searching every article, watching every film, listening to every podcast, And I felt like the things that I was learning were really important and things that the wider culture wasn't aware of and that I needed to communicate in some way. And like I said, my craft is as a filmmaker, it's what I do professionally, it's what I love doing, it's what I've wanted to do since I was 14. So film seemed like the natural place to express that. And that's what led to the documentary and, you know, within a month of learning all of this, I was traveling up and down the coast, interviewing every person whose book I'd read, and whose website I'd seen and whose work I was aware of. So that's what led to the film. And I think that a lot of people are afraid to look at this issue because they have this idea that if they look at the issue of circumcision, it's just gonna make them feel bad in some way, Hmm. and there's gonna be nothing they can do about it. And what I found is very much the opposite, that there's a lot you can do about it if you're willing to look at some of the difficult questions this issue raises. So. That's what the film explores and what we get into in the movie.
2: Well, well said. And I think that is really the heart of the issue. I think another thing is that people can be self centered and to admit that there's something wrong with this issue might mean to admit that something bad happened to them. Or they might think, well, it happened to me. I'm here. You know, I'm not going to fight too hard to end this practice because it's too late for me. Those kind of thoughts. But I do think the trauma issue is kind of interesting because one of your subjects in the films mentions that people can have flashbacks or reoccurring nightmares about being laid out on a medical table with figures looking down on them and some type of sexual experimentation happening. That sounds like uh, some other things that we cover on this show from time to time. And I thought the correlation was interesting. Who knows where? these things really come from. Maybe it can come from something like that. It certainly seems traumatic. And I guess in terms of framing up the topic, what are some facts and statistics about circumcision you could tell us that might grease the wheels a bit and give us a general lay of the land?
0: I think one of the most shocking things that I learned in research for the documentary was that up until the late 1980s, doctors believed that infants did not feel pain and would do the procedure without any anesthesia or pain relief. And you can imagine a newborn infant being, they actually strap them down to a four-point restraint called a circumstraint. It's essentially like a tiny rack for a baby. And they will do this procedure on the child without any pain relief, so the child is screaming throughout it. And I think a lot of people think that it's done, you know, it's just a little snip, as the culture likes to say, When in reality they use a clamp and it's an involved 15 minute procedure and the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands, it's very gruesome and shocking to look at. And many of the activists I interviewed told me that just seeing the procedure for the first time was what made them want to become an activist, was what made them feel like we have to change this. Part of the challenge of this issue is that like you said, it hits on a lot of identity level things for people. You know, people will say about other procedures that they have like they'll say i had you know shoulder surgery or i had my tonsils out but when it comes to circumcision they say i am circumcised it's an identity thing it's part of who they are the same way you might say that you're white or black or gay and in reality circumcision is just another thing that happened to you And it isn't necessarily an identity level thing, but we make it into that because it deals with the body, because it deals with sexuality and genitals. And so I think if people were to shift their frame a little bit in that way and to look at it as just as something that happened to them rather than a part of who they are, then they would have a little more flexibility in thinking about the issue of, okay, well, this is something that happened to me, yes, but is it really aligned with my values? I think a lot of people, too, regularly you know, really accept the idea that you have the right to make your own choices about your sexuality and your body. And the argument that activists against circumcision are making is that human beings have the right to make their own decisions about their body. And that to cut off part of someone's body without their consent is a violation of their basic human rights. And when I framed it to people that way, you know, when I talk to people about it, they go, yeah, that makes sense. And so we've had a culture that just through inertia has framed this as a parental choice, as if parents have the right to decide what body parts their children keep, as opposed to an issue of human autonomy and human rights and sexual freedom. Now, you mentioned the trauma. That's sometimes a little difficult to talk about because you can't really do a double-blind study where one group of people get circumcised and another group of people don't, and then they have exactly the same life experiences and background and all the other things in their life. It's really hard to do a study like that. And even on types of trauma that we accept culturally as having an impact, like someone experiencing sexual abuse or rape as an adult, it's even hard there to prove correlation. Yeah, I think we all sort of intuitively understand that someone who experiences those things will have trauma and that trauma might manifest itself in strange ways, in ways that are difficult for that person to deal with. Now, when it comes to circumcision, there are some studies on the lasting impact of that pain. There was a study that we cover in the film, the Anandin Hickey pain studies and the Tatio pain studies, which showed that there was a change in behavior from circumcision pain among infants. And what they did was they tested children when they were being vaccinated. And they found that one group of infants being vaccinated responded much more dramatically to the pain. So they give a child the vaccine, they put the needle in for that. Some children, you know, it's uncomfortable for them, but they're able to endure it. And others react dramatically. You know, they act like this is the most horrible thing that's happened to them. And so the researchers were trying to figure out why is one group of children responding so dramatically to the pain? You know, they're looking at were they breastfed? Were they not breastfed? Do they come from a different background or birth style or something like that? And it was actually circumcision that was the defining factor. So children who were circumcised responded much more dramatically to the pain. And the researchers attributed this to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning that they believe that the children had this very painful experience of circumcision, where, again, at the time this study was done, it was being performed without any anesthesia. And when they felt pain again, there was a traumatic flashback to the pain of circumcision that they were reacting to in addition to the pain of that moment. So, you know, again, it is hard to sometimes put a one-to-one correlation or even talk about a particular person's pain without just simply accepting that that's their experience. But there is research that, by the way, is accepted by both sides of the debate that indicates that there is post-traumatic stress disorder from circumcision.
2: Right. I thought that was one of the most fascinating studies. And it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like if you're in a room with someone who's been shot and you pull a gun out, they're going to have a reaction to that. Like, get that thing away from me. I know bad things happen when I'm involved with this kind of room and environment and you start bringing something out to touch me with. It makes sense. I mean, intuitively, as you said, you can see how that kind of thing would happen. And there's another moment in the film that I think is interesting where one of the pro-circumcision guys says, again, downplaying it. It's no big deal. In fact, sometimes babies sleep through the procedure. And then it's like you come back on the other side and say, actually, sometimes they go into shock from the procedure. I wouldn't call it sleeping. I'd call it a a protective haze to keep that you know pain threshold down or whatever it is. But, yeah, I think that's just... One of the issues surrounding the way people look at this thing and the language, like you said, the cultural nick, it's more than a nick. And it's just interesting that someone who's such an advocate for that would be ignorant to the fact that, no, this is a reaction to pain. This is going into shock.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I have found about this issue is that there seems to be a divide, not just on people who are for and against circumcision, but people who are willing to. Accept the emotions and feelings of others as valid and people who aren't and when you talk to a lot of pro circumcision advocates They feel like they have this data which indicates that circumcision is good and all of those human Experiences and emotions and feelings can just be discounted because we don't know how to quantify them in an academic paper and So when they talk about the pain that infants experience and things like that, to anyone who's in the room when this procedure is being done, it's clear the child is in pain. But among doctors and academics, they say, well, we don't know how to quantify that, so it must not exist, which is a huge leap. I mean, there's no studies to indicate that it doesn't exist. And even among things like the study I mentioned, where they show that there is post-traumatic stress disorder among some infants who've experienced this, they'll say, well, that obviously just goes away when they're older and doesn't affect adults. And it's like, how do you know that? There's no (laughs) study to indicate that. If anything, the opposite would be true based on what we know about trauma and the way that affects people, that if it isn't healed or dealt with, it grows worse or it remains in the body. So I think that there's another layer there. And that layer, again, if you understand the nature of trauma, it makes sense that people would want to discount this or not admit it, because that's a psychological defense against feeling those feelings. Because if they admit those feelings are valid in others, they might have to admit they're valid in themselves. And what does that mean?
2: Deep, man. Yes, we are funny creatures, but that pattern seems to exist in so many different issues, and this is definitely one of them. And one of the main things that I learned, one of the first things I learned, is about how the practice evolved, or maybe we should say devolved, over time because the amount of tissue that we remove today is a shockingly larger amount than was removed in the beginning, right?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that people think about this issue is they say, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be okay, because we sort of have a cultural bias that things in the Bible are probably okay. And in reality, the type of circumcision that was practiced in ancient israel in old testament you know torah biblical times is different than the practice that we do in modern america so it used to be that they would only remove the very tip of the foreskin what's known as the ridge band the part that comes and hangs over the glands of the penis and they did that because it was fused to the head of the glands so the same way that your fingernail is fused to your finger when a child is born the foreskin is fused to the head of their glands. And it makes sense from a biological perspective because a newborn infant doesn't need to use their penis in the way that an adult sexual being does. And usually in adolescence or when that child is older, that barrier loosens and the foreskin's able to glide up and down the penis. But when the practice first began, it was just the ridge band. And in the Hellenistic period, thousands of years, or hundreds of years later, I should say, There was a change in the practice, and the change came because Jewish men wanted to participate in Roman athletic events, and Roman athletic events were typically done in the nude, and having the glands of your penis exposed was considered lewd. You know, if you think about it, when the penis is flaccid, when it's not erect, that skin is going to cover the head of the penis, and so having it exposed would be seen as lewd and sexual, because that would only happen if someone was getting an erection. And so these Jewish men would clip their foreskin forward. They would essentially tie it over the head of the penis so that they looked like Romans because they didn't want to look different. and They didn't want to be singled out as weird or having had this strange surgery. And the Jewish priest, the rabbi, didn't like that because this was supposed to make them look different. And so they were trying to pass as Romans rather than identify as Jews. So they changed the practice to remove not just the very tip of the foreskin, but the entire foreskin, and would break it away and pull it forward and do what we now think of as circumcision. And that's a lot more tissue, and it's a lot more radical a procedure. So I think when people talk about, you know, for example, biblical circumcision, they don't realize that what they're practicing is not what happened in ancient Israel, it's something much more radical, and it was done specifically to prevent Jewish men from passing as Gentiles.
2: Yeah, I thought that little bit of history with the Roman games was really fascinating. And it's weird how little microcosms like that can explode into this tradition that most people in America have experienced and just makes no sense and has no relation to anything in their life. And the religious aspect is also interesting because I grew up in a Catholic school where everyone I knew was circumcised except the one kid who was adopted from overseas. And that's how I learned there even was a difference when I was a kid, because we just had one example. And, you know, he felt like the odd man out. Little did he know that we were all traumatized and damaged in a sense. I mean, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but when you watch the film, you can't help but have those kind of feelings about it. And oddly, it's not a Christian or Catholic tradition. And I guess the Bible says that, you know, once you have the Jesus sacrifice, that you no longer have to make these kind of blood sacrifices or alterations. And that's a curious thing, because I guess it gets back to the point that it's more of an American tradition than it is a religious one. And we're the only Western civilized country in the world that has this non-religious circumcision tradition, which is, I guess, why the film is called American Circumcision
0: exactly and i think a lot of people in america think of it as a christian thing when in reality the new testament says that circumcision is a mutilation and you're not supposed to perform it that essentially circumcision in the jewish tradition is a blood sacrifice and in christianity the idea is that christ was the last blood sacrifice you know he died for everyone's sins and so if you're performing blood sacrifices for some sort of reason in the Christian tradition, then you're sort of denying your faith in Christ. You're saying, well, his sacrifice wasn't enough, so we need to do this other stuff. And America is unique in this practice. That is part of the reason the film has the title that it does. Most of the world does not practice this. It's practiced in Jewish nations and Jewish culture, and it's practiced in Muslim nations and Muslim culture, and some tribal parts of Africa But it's really small. I mean, there's like a tiny percentage around the world for, you know, obvious reasons. The fact that there's a lot of people from different cultures living across the world. But really, it's a uniquely American practice to have routine infant circumcision. And I think a lot of Americans assume that this is something normal, that everyone does it. You know, I've seen threads where there's some boomer in the thread essentially saying, well, I had the placenta cut and that's obviously the same thing. And it's not. They just sort of have this idea it's just a standard routine thing that everyone does when, in, in fact, Americans are in the minority here. And actually, even in America, the rate of circumcision is dropping. So a child born today, when they're an adult, will probably be in the minority if they're circumcised.
2: Mm. It's all just so interesting. And getting back to the procedure itself and the tissue that's removed, I thought this was really important. And one of the film's subjects, Glenn Callender, the founder of the Canadian Foreskin Awareness Project, he says something that really stuck out to me where he mentions the feminist movement and how one of the major points was that women were not getting enough sexual pleasure because the culture was so repressed that they didn't have enough knowledge of their own bodies, of the clitoris, of the G-spot, and all this sort of stuff. But the real irony is that men are actually further back than women are because we are so ignorant about what's actually cut off and how we're affected, and it's a big deal. Can you talk to us a little bit about this aspect and the actual tissue that's removed and some of the other parts?
0: Right. If you look at female sexuality and the way that we understand female sexuality now, it's known that women have different parts that get different types of orgasm. So for example, the orgasm that comes from the clitoris is different than the orgasm that comes from the G-spot. And there is a cultural conversation, or at least a conversation among people who are talking about sexuality openly, that those are different, and there are different types of pleasure. Whereas when we look at the way that we understand male pleasure, it's this very simplistic you know, the penis goes in and it feels good on that part of the body. And we don't talk about different types of male pleasure or that the different parts of men's genitals might have different sensations. We just sort of see the penis all as one structure, largely because the additional parts of that part of the body have been removed in American culture. So if you actually look at the full, intact male genitals, there are multiple types of sensation you can get from different parts of it. There is the ridge band, which is the very tip of the foreskin, that acts almost as a drawstring that holds the foreskin over top the edge of the glands. And if you look at the nerve endings there, they're some of the most concentrated in the male body. There's a high concentration of what are known as Meisner's corpuscles, which are the kind of sensory touch nerves that are in your hand. They're also the kind that you have around your lips and all the openings of the body. And if you think about it, it would make sense from a biological perspective that we would have a lot of nerve endings around the openings of the body because if something is being put inside you, you know, you'd want to know about it, right? So there's a lot of sensation there in the ridge band of the foreskin. There's a lot of sensation in the frenulum, which is that part on the underside of the penis that holds the, you know, you have a frenulum in your lip, it holds your lip in place and your tongue down. And again, there's a lot of sensation there. And depending on how someone was circumcised, they may have more of that sensation left than others. Again, it's not like there's a dotted line on men that says, like, cut here, Mm -hmm. right? So this procedure is done very unevenly person to person, and there are some people that got to keep more of the sensation that they were born with, and there were others who had more removed. So some men may still have their frenulum, and if they were to run an experiment on themselves to see what they could feel with that part of the body, they would feel a lot more there than they might feel in the head of the penis. The head of the penis is actually one of the least sensory parts of the man. If you look at the number of nerve endings, it's actually more so the inner lining of the foreskin that has more. And again, you know, if you are circumcised, there'll be a scar line, and there's tissue below that scar line that's maybe a little darker and a little rougher, and tissue above it that's a little lighter, and if you were to just run your finger over that, there would probably be more sensation on the remaining inner lining of the foreskin, the area above that scar line, than there would be below. And I know that this is, may seem a bit graphic to some people. This is like a very in-depth discussion of sexuality and probably more than most men, or really anyone has had the, about male sexuality before. But I think it's important to have that conversation because we've had that conversation around women. And think about where women would be and how much pleasure they get out of their sexuality if we lived in a time when we didn't even acknowledge that women had orgasms. Which is, there have been periods of history when that was the case, right? So we haven't had that conversation yet about men. And if we're willing to have that conversation, if we're willing to acknowledge these aspects of our biology and our sexuality, then we could start to experience those types of pleasure. And even if you are circumcised, even if you don't have all of those parts, you'll be more aware of the pleasure you can get. So instead of just having a generalized feeling that this is like, okay, well, when I have sex, it feels good. You'll be aware of the places in your body it feels good and able to get more pleasure from them.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, I definitely think it is important yet uncomfortable. But through that lens of looking at women's sexuality, I mean, any guy who has investigated a lot of that stuff, In the interest of pleasing women, I think it creates a good template to think about the possibilities of the male orgasm and stuff. This guy, Glenn Callender, he calls himself a professional foreskin demonstrator. And apparently he does these demonstrations where he'll even show videos of the different orgasms. I mean, because how else do you do it? You know, it might be embarrassing for him, but he's trying to do something positive. And so you got to show this stuff. He shows videos of him having five different orgasms in two minutes, all kinds of things that I think a lot of guys would find to be strange, even guys who've had a lot of sex. And that's what's really interesting to me is you can have sex hundreds of times without ever really thinking about this kind of stuff. And
0: it's just a a weird way that the brain works. Yeah, well, if you think about how people's misconceptions about sex get challenged or changed. I mean, when you were a kid, you probably had all sorts of misconceptions about sex, right?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And the way that you change your perspective on those is usually either you learn through firsthand experience or someone tells you. And when it comes to the issue of circumcision and the foreskin, most people don't have experience with that part of the body, especially if they're men, especially if they're straight men. They only know the body that they have. And the wider culture doesn't clear up those misconceptions. In fact, it reinforces misconceptions and creates new misconceptions. So there's no point at which those childlike misconceptions about the body would ever be challenged. And so that's part of the reason you have to have a very direct conversation about things on this issue because the wider culture isn't having that conversation.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, we consider female circumcision so repulsive and barbaric. Like, how could you remove the clitoris? But the frenulum, this area, is similar to what could equate to a male clitoris. And we're removing all of it or most of it or some of it. Like you said, there's no standard, which is scary enough. But the sensitivity studies you talk about in the film proved that the most sensitive part was the foreskin. And in circumcised men, it's the ring from the scar. And that's interesting in itself, but they say they could equate for its 75% loss of fine touch sensation, 80,000 to 100,000 of those Meisner corpuscles removed. That's insane, man.
0: It's a lot. And, and I think, too, in Western culture, there's this narrative that Female circumcision is this horrible thing designed to destroy women's sexuality and that circumcised women basically can't even enjoy their bodies at all. Whereas male circumcision is this medical procedure which somehow improves and makes men healthier. And there's a lot of sexism in that narrative. There's an idea in there that men and male sexuality is somehow born wrong in need of fixing. And there's this idea that female bodies are somehow more to be protected and more special than male bodies. And there's also an idea in there that American cultural practices are universally good and okay, and foreign practices, the practices of brown people and African people, are somehow really bad and awful and barbaric. And when you actually look at the two procedures, they are more similar than different, because there's no culture that practices female circumcision that doesn't also practice male circumcision. There are cultures that just practice male circumcision, but there's no culture that just practices female circumcision. And the circumcised women, especially those I've interviewed in the film, who I've talked to, almost always say that male circumcision is also wrong. And they see the two practices as comparable and similar. And it's really only privileged white people and people from Western nations who somehow make a distinction between the two because they want to see their version of genital cutting as good and beneficial and don't necessarily want to look at the similarities between those practices.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's do talk about some of the pro arguments or the common misconceptions, the things that people who are listening now might get faced with if they start trying to become advocates for this kind of stuff. What are the typical talking points and how accurate are they?
0: So part of the challenge with pro circumcision talking points is that they fit in a headline and don't make a lot of sense when you start deconstructing them. So when you say, well, it's cleaner. Okay, cleaner how? Do you mean less germs? Do you, like, do you have a study to back that up? Does soap and water not cure whatever cleanliness problems you think the, this part of the body might have? Is there something inherently dirty about the genitals and sexuality that's somehow different than, say, you know, the inside of your ear or your mouth? it doesn't make a lot of sense when you start breaking it down. And part of the reason these sort of cultural memes don't make a lot of sense is when you trace them back, their origin is different than the way that they're used now. So when you hear the meme that, well, it's cleaner somehow, that actually goes all the way back to an era when we thought sexuality was dirty in some way. And when that cultural meme began, it wasn't just that circumcision Somehow made the genitals physically cleaner, but also morally cleaner. That there was something dirty about sexual pleasure that needed to be fixed and that removing the most sensitive part of the body could fix this so that people would not engage in, you know, abhorrent sexuality more. And literally it was actually even promoted as a cure for masturbation. That was one of the reasons that circumcision began in America in the Victorian era as a cure for masturbation. So when someone says in modern times well it's cleaner they're obviously not coming from the same frame of mind as a victorian trying to stop masturbation yet that cultural meme has gone through the culture so much that it's just repeated sort of without thought and when you go into a lot of pro-circumcision talking points they sort of fall apart under similar scrutiny you know there's this idea sons need to match their fathers well do you remember comparing penises with your father as a child? Is this something that like people do? Like That's absurd. There's no young man who feels a deep need for him to match his father in that way. And I think that that statement, that justification, really comes from the insecurity of fathers who want their sons to look like them. Pro-circumcision groups will sometimes make medical arguments about circumcision. They will say that it reduces sexually transmitted diseases, that it reduces the spread of HIV. Which again, these are diseases that adults get, sexual adults, not necessarily infants. And when you go into the research of those, when you actually break down the data, there's a lot of inconsistencies and it doesn't look like good science. But again, in order to do that, you have to go really deep into the data. And most people read the headline. They don't even read the abstract of these scientific studies. They read the headline in the popular science and news. And they think, well, I'm circumcised and I don't want to get those things. So that must be good. But when you get into the data on them, it's really suspicious.
2: Right. I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, a lot of misconceptions are addressed. And it makes me think about sexual abuse In general, because a lot of times there's a pattern where the cycle continues or victims later in life become offenders. And it's just interesting that this circumcision cycle has kind of the same pattern. It could possibly be an element in the circumcision soup. But regardless, with the HIV rates and STD rates, that's something that I think people have heard. This claim that circumcised men have 60% lower HIV rates. It's something addressed in the film. And then someone makes the point, well, that's interesting because America has the highest HIV and highest circumcision rates. So how can it really be preventative? Because clearly we're number one in both categories.
0: Yeah, I've heard it said that circumcision is a cure in search of a disease, Mm. meaning that when this practice was started in America, HIV was not the reason it was done. It was done for other reasons. And when those reasons were disproved, they found a new reason. So there's a, Continual cycle to try to find a reason to keep doing this as the reasons we were doing it are disproved and don't make sense anymore And HIV is the latest one because HIV is sort of one of the scariest medical things out there now, right? It's the big bad if you will, but when you actually get into the data of that The claim that it reduces HIV by 60% is a relative risk reduction and the absolute risk reduction is closer to under 2%. So if you're outside and you go inside, you have reduced the relative risk of getting hit by a meteor by thousands percent. Yet, what are the chances of that really happening, right? So people will sort of jack up their statistics by talking about relative risk. And it's worth mentioning, too, the studies that are used to justify this claim. We're all carried out in Sub-Saharan Africa and don't necessarily apply to the United States. So the reasons people get HIV in the United States are different than those in Sub-Saharan Africa, especially in places where, you know, oftentimes there isn't clean running water. And on top of all that, even if we were to accept that circumcision reduced HIV by a certain percent, we wouldn't accept that claim in the case of female circumcision. We would say, well, Adult women have the right to their own body, and even if something done to their bodies would reduce the transmission of HIV, they have the right to make their own decision about that. And there have been studies that suggest that female circumcision reduces HIV, but those studies, very interestingly, have been scrapped part way through because the researchers were afraid it would be used as a justification for female circumcision. So the cultural double standards play here too. And the sequence I had on the HIV studies in its first version was about an hour long. I could do a whole documentary just on those studies and the problems and challenges with them. There's the fact that more people left the study than stayed in it. There is the fact that the group that was circumcised got medical counseling that the other group didn't. Medical counseling, by the way, in which they were told to use condoms and the circumcised group used condoms at a higher rate. So right there, do the studies show that circumcision has an effect on HIV or that a group that uses condoms at a higher rate gets HIV at a lower rate? I mean, uh, the people involved were paid. You can go down the list of different challenges with these studies. And then there's also another conversation to have about the amount of money that went through them. So $40 million from PEPFAR, from you, the taxpayer, went to circumcision campaigns in Africa to stop the spread of HIV and there's been significant money contributed from the Gates Foundation and from the Clinton Foundation from all these big groups that ought to be able to know that the data involved does not really justify this and a lot of people have suggested that there might be something strange going on there but again you know there's not a lot that comes out of these circumcision campaigns in Africa that isn't From the people that are doing them and it would require further investigation to really understand Why all this money is going to that? But what we do cover in the documentary is whether or not those studies are true and applicable to America and I think if you go through the data It doesn't make a lot of sense to even apply those to an American setting where I just don't think that most people when they're making decisions for their children's health are really worried about HIV so much that they're going to hold their child down and rip part of their body off as they scream in pain. Like, it does not make sense under scrutiny.
2: I agree. And interestingly enough, before I ever heard of this documentary, I was in a conversation with some friends and one of them disclosed to me that they had to have an adult circumcision for medical reasons. I didn't pry too much, but they did say that it is night and day different, the sexual experience and the feeling. And I thought it was just very unique to get that insight from a person who would have that procedure at adulthood. So they actually could compare and it stuck out to me. And then this documentary confirmed a lot of what he was saying. Man, when I'm listening to it, I just can't get over the, the question of who cares, like what kind of person or organization is passionate about making sure this happens. Like you mentioned, you have These clips of politicians like Hillary Clinton announcing millions of dollars dedicated to circumcising Africans and everybody just stands up and applauds and it's like, why do you care? How about getting them running water or something like that? I mean, it's just an odd thing to be preoccupied with unless there's some kind of other agenda I'm not aware of.
0: So I've heard two theories on why organizations are pushing circumcision as a practice. The first and probably most likely is medical liability. So, the organizations involved have practiced circumcision as a medical practice for a long time. In particular, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is, you know, one of the largest pediatric trade organizations in the country. And if they were to say that this practice they've been doing a long time is actually harmful, is not necessary, then they would open themselves up to lawsuit and malpractice insurance is one of the biggest expenses for any doctor and any doctor's organization and if they were to say that there's a possibility that every circumcised man in america would have a potential lawsuit against them which is a lot of money so it would financially destroy them and so The theory is that their legal team has said you absolutely can never condemn circumcision. You can say, well, maybe there's some benefits and there's some risks, but we leave it up to the parents to decide. But you can't say it's wrong. So that's one theory. And then the other is that if circumcision were to be challenged on moral and ethical grounds, medical circumcision were to be challenged, that it would also threaten religious circumcision. and If you say, well, you don't have the right to cut off part of a child's body without his consent in a medical setting, then that might also apply to a religious setting because people have religious freedom. You know, if you're a Christian, you can't tattoo a cross on your child. You can't practice female circumcision on your daughter if that's your religion. Why would you be allowed to do something as invasive or more invasive to your male child? So, there is also a theory that there are Jewish interest groups Who really do not want to see this practice compromised and might not even want to be singled out in that way because circumcision is designed as a mark in Jewish culture to identify Jewish people as different in some way. And there is a fear among some Jewish people of being seen as different or singled out or targeted or persecuted. And so if everyone is circumcised, they don't stand out in that way but they're not going to give up their practice which they've you know identified with which they see as a religious right. So the two theories that I've heard that are most plausible are that groups that are doing circumcision don't want to give up the money involved and don't want to get sued out of business and religious groups don't want to give up what they see as their religious right and also don't want their practice to be seen as different or wrong in some way.
2: Mm-hmm. I think you're definitely On to something with the malpractice issue because you follow the money on most things and that's where you're going to find the motivations. And a part of me does think of it as like something we take for granted as just an outpatient procedure for babies like a recommended uh, tire rotation with your oil change. It's just another line item on this massive bill given to new parents And on both sides of it, you don't want to get sued to lose the money and you don't want to forego the money you're gaining from this extra unnecessary practice. I mean, I definitely think that's probably a good majority of, of why this happens.
0: Yeah, there's also a third possibility I've heard, which is there's a lot of money made in the commercial sale of foreskins. So if you circumcise a child and you save the foreskin, that has tissue that can be used commercially, including in stem cells, because a child that young still has some stem cell tissue in them. And there's a new story that came out recently about beauty products that use infant foreskin in them, that rich celebrities are using, people like Sandra Bullock and Kate Beckinsdale. Oprah has even sold these products on her show. And I've heard that the money made in the commercial sale of foreskins is really high. I've wanted to find someone who will speak about that on camera, but they're understandably shy about that. There's one person I was talking to. I said, you know, I would make him anonymous. I'd change his voice. I'd backlight him so that you couldn't see who he was. Absolutely not. He was not about to talk about that on camera. But I have heard that the money involved in that is very significant.
2: Mm, I don't doubt it. Yeah, you're right. I've seen those same clips of those celebrities endorsing that kind of stuff in beauty products. But Let's also give some time to the resistance movement and what's going on there. Talk to us a little bit about intactivism, which I think is a clever word play, and this movement that's pushing back. How large are they? How effective have they been?
0: So the intactivist movement is a movement that believes all human beings have the right to their own body. And to cut off a part of someone's body without their consent is a violation of their basic human rights. And obviously, the word is a play on the word intact and activist Activists for the intact body. I've also heard them referred to as the genital autonomy movement the idea that you have autonomy over your own body including your genitals and They oppose male circumcision they oppose female circumcision and they oppose intersex genital cutting Which is a whole nother topic that we could get into at some point, but for the sake of this I'll focus on male circumcision they have done a lot with very little So, if you look at the movement, when they began, there was a number of doctors and nurses who had objections to the practice, who had seen it done. And if you think about it, it's only been recently that we've been able to even get images of it. Usually, the child is sent away, and most people don't see what happens to their child when this procedure is done. So, a lot of the early people who were involved were former nurses and doctors who had seen the procedure and thought, this is wrong. We should not be doing this there were a lot of parents and men especially a lot of gay men who had the comparative experience and had seen both bodies and thought wait like why does my partner have this weird scar here why does this person i know have a botch of some kind that doesn't make sense and they just basically took every opportunity they could to talk about this and speak in public about it they also published academic literature they made media you know everything that you would expect an activist movement to do And I think the thing that a lot of people don't understand about activism is that it takes time to change culture. It has been a slow process over 30 or 40 years, but now we've gone from a circumcision rate that was above 90% to one that is around 50% and maybe even lower. And again, these organizations don't have a lot of money. They have what you and I have essentially, they have the ability to talk and to share their message. I think that things like this, things like social media, things like the ability that we have now to create our own media have been incredibly useful for them because before, the only time that they were able to get through on this issue was through traditional media, which often was reluctant to talk about something this controversial. And I think they've also benefited from other movements that have made it more okay to talk publicly about sexuality, and to you know, accept the idea that you have the right to your own body. I mean, there's a lot of other movements that have pushed something similar to that idea that they've benefited from. Now that we are a much more sexually open society, that we have the means of communication to share this message to a wider audience, I think that they are on the cusp of breaking through into the mainstream. And again, if you look at activist movements, cultural change happens very slowly and then all at once. It's not like there was a point that you could point to where you know things like the civil rights movement or the gay rights movement or other movements, where it was a gradual point that they got to. It was a slow burn and that suddenly had a moment in culture where it was the thing that everyone was talking about. And I think that that moment is coming with this issue and it's coming very soon.
2: Right, like we might be near that tipping point. Now the film has been out for a couple of months. How would you compare the reactions you've gotten to maybe your expectations that you had in your
0: mind? You know, I wasn't sure what sort of reaction this would get. And I think what we've had is a slow build where the more people who see the film, the more people recommend it. And what's interesting is I sort of thought Most films, they come out, they make a splash, and then they kind of disappear. And this film has sort of steadily reached people. And we've been expanding our audience bit by bit. So in some way, I think that's better. Instead of one hit and then it's gone from the culture, it's becoming a thing that people recommend to friends who are having kids or people who want to understand this issue. And that's kind of what I wanted it to be. I want it to be something that 10 years later is still relevant for people who want to understand this issue. So my hope is that it's only going to continue to grow.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm also curious, has there been any response from the critics or the American Academy of Pediatrics?
0: So we've had a couple people respond in interesting ways. I kind of like different reactions to the film. I've gotten a couple hater reviews and they're really entertaining to me. You know, I, I feel like if someone is triggered enough to write a really crazy, insane review that the film affected them in some way. And that's interesting to me. And there's a few of those out there. I actually had, we had a screening at Oxford Town Hall recently and I got a, request from a reporter for comment that there were people who were going to protest the film and basically say that it was anti-Semitic because it was criticizing circumcision. And I replied that we interviewed Jewish men on both sides in the film and that these Jewish men say they feel really harmed by the practice and that anyone protesting our film should be seen as an anti-human rights activist trying to silence Jewish men. And so that article ran, and then no one showed up to protest the film. Mm. (laughs) So I think my quote was a little too effective. (laughs) Uh, But the AAP is aware of the film. And it's funny because they haven't said anything about it publicly. Their national convention was a couple months ago, or I think it was late October, early November. And I tried to place an ad for the film there for their conference. You know, you go to a conference, you get a bag, and it has – all sorts of free giveaways in it, and then sometimes there's ads in the bag. There's an info card for different groups, right? So for $5,500, you could get an info card in everyone's bag for one day, and for $10,000, you could get a card in everyone's bag for two days. So I made an info card that said uh, a film featuring multiple members of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it had our poster, and I tried to place it as an ad, and they said, no, absolutely not and didn't give me a reason beyond that. So I, I literally could not pay the organization thousands of dollars to talk about my film, but they are aware of it. And when I visited the conference, there were people there who were very high up in the organization who recognized me on site. So I made eye contact with one of the members of the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on Circumcision. And like his eyes went wide the moment he saw me, which means they're paying enough attention to it that they're able to recognize me just from my face without me saying anything or anything like that. And I think they feel really threatened by it. But they're also aware that engaging publicly on this issue is a challenge for them. And so I'm 100% certain they've had meetings about the film, but they're right now keeping publicly silent on it.
2: Well, that's got to make you feel good a little bit. They've kind of identified the troublemaker. And I think you've got all the arguments on your side.
0: You know, there's a part of me that likes being a dangerous artist. And there's another part of me that's like, I'm just a guy talking about the facts and what's there. And there's a way in which I don't see myself as very threatening. And I also feel like I'm willing to work with them. I think that their concerns around legal liability or preserving the face of their organization are legitimate, and I'm willing to have a conversation about those, and I'm willing to find a solution where these activists are heard, and their concerns are addressed, and the organization is able to get what it needs. But they're not interested in having the conversation. I think they see this whole thing as annoying, and would rather throw money at the problem more or try to avoid it as much as possible, or personally attack the people involved, which is unfortunate.
2: Yeah. Oh, man, boy, it seems really tough to try to navigate those waters and try to correct this tradition and also not have them admit to causing harm. That seems very delicate and a hard, tightrope to walk.
0: It is, but I think it's possible. And again, like part of the challenge is that they don't talk publicly about these concerns because then they would have to admit that there's financial reasons they'd want to continue the practice or legal liability reasons they can't talk about why it's bad. So even having the conversation or admitting the interest they have is not something they want to do.
2: Right on, man. And so as we're kind of getting to the end of the road here, the film ends with a dedication. And I was kind of curious, what is the story behind that dedication?
0: So at the end, we we have a dedication to Jonathan Conti. He's one of the people who appears in the film. Jonathan was a member of Bay Area Intactivists, an Intactivist group in San Francisco. And for a lot of people, he was a public face of the movement. He was a very well-spoken young man who had a lot of grief over his circumcision and spoke very eloquently about it. And about two years ago, ended his own life. And it was a very clear, deliberate choice the way that he did it. It was something that he had planned. And he had a lot of grief over this issue. He felt like that it was wrong, that he was harmed, and that there was no way of changing things. And I think if there is a recipe for suicide, it's feeling intense sadness and grief and feeling like you're alone in it and that no one in the larger world is willing to listen to you and feeling like it will never change. And so he was someone who meant a lot to people involved on this issue. He was someone I interviewed in the film and I felt like it would be meaningful to honor him by putting that dedication at the end.
2: Mm -hmm. I agree. It is very sad and it is nice that you did that. Well, man, (laughs) we pretty much covered it. I really thank you for making the film. I certainly learned a lot and I think the people who listened today did as well. Please give them the info they need to find and watch American Circumcision for themselves, as well as anything else you might be working on, or might want to tell them before we close it out.
0: So you can find the film on circumcisionmovie.com. It's available on Amazon and iTunes and Vimeo. We are at CircMovie on all social media. You can find me at brendanmorada.com and at bdmorada. bd, Murata, BD M-A-R-O-T-T-A, on all social media. I feel like this issue is something that's going to continue to grow. And I have some other film projects in the works, but I can't really talk about them yet. So you'll just have to follow me and see for yourself.
2: (laughs) Right on. Well, again, very informative, super important issue, as odd and uncomfortable as it might be for some. Big thanks to you again, and keep up the great work. Keep stirring pots.
0: Thank you, and thanks for having me on.
2: You got it. Sweet Jesus people, give yourselves a hand. You're still with me. We did it. A full THC dedicated to dicks. Seriously, though, I did learn quite a bit, and I absolutely think we should stop doing this rather than just trying to downplay it after the fact. So I was really happy to do it and try to maintain a professional manner but it's also a little comical that THC now has a dick show. That's just the reality of it. And to be honest, for several years, I was one of those people of the mindset that, yeah, we probably don't need to do it anymore, but I'll get my kid circumcised for the cosmetic reason. Like he's being prepared for some kind of dog show or something. But I think that's probably the most common mindset out there. And I hope now people who are of that mindset are reconsidering. Because when you get into the severity of it, cosmetics just isn't a good enough reason anymore. There's actually something that happened on this show way back in the day, probably in the first year even. But I had a guest by the name of Lennon Honor, And he was speaking in reference to circumcision and vaccines, but he felt deeply about the idea that it is a father's duty to protect their kids from harm. Pretty simple premise, but he took it to a deep philosophical and spiritual level, and his passion was pretty convincing, and he saw both of those things, vaccines and circumcision, as a violation of that protection. And that's fair, right? Because you're giving your newborn over to strangers who you don't know to perform procedures you don't know much about on blind faith. And I'm sorry. That's just not good enough. And I have agreed ever since, especially on this issue. A father should step up and say no. Any parent, really, but, you know, matters of the penis, I think it's okay to defer to dad, at least on this one. And don't be afraid to buck the trend. As Brendan said, the trends are going the other way anyway, so you might do something so your kid's not the odd man out and make him the odd man out. You want to have that conversation with a 12-year-old? I just thought your penis would look better. I don't want to have that conversation, I'll tell you that. Brendan definitely gave us plenty of reasons to avoid it, but... It is really a multi-layered issue. The psychological piece is no small thing. This attitude that, well, I had one and I'm fine, so let's just keep doing it to everyone else. It's no good. Yeah, to actually stop means maybe there is something wrong with it, and that might mean something wrong was done to you, or to your brother, or to your son, or to me. I guess I'm okay saying that. I was wronged, but I don't want guys out there to start thinking, yeah, I am a victim and start tracing all their issues back to the big slice. For me, I think my response is that I'm probably not going to restore my foreskin, but after I saw all the things that can go wrong and we know the medical system fucks up. I see it as an unnecessary risk and a pointless procedure. And what I learned was that us guys who were cut as kids, we really are ignorant of what we're missing. We really cannot speak from any kind of informed position. Imagine, instead of foreskins, we had some arbitrary tradition of cutting off pinky fingers. Now, pinky fingers feel like a big deal, no doubt, but you can still hold a fork or a pen you can still drive you can go through life feeling as if you didn't really lose anything until someone who still has their pinky fingers comes around and says hey wait a second having this extra finger is actually really useful for my life and when i look back if i didn't have it that would have been a real shame maybe listen to that person Or imagine we put drops in baby's eyes that make them go colorblind. Yeah, you could still get through life, but you'd never really know the full extent of what you're missing. If most people had it done, you never knew color yourself, and a doctor recommended it, a lot of people would just do it. And the full spectrum of what a person would be losing would just be an idea. I'm only saying you don't know about what you don't have. You don't know what you're missing. If everyone else around you is also missing it, that doesn't help. And I didn't realize the foreskin was more than just a skin sheath. And I'm pissed! Pissed might be a little strong, but I definitely am not happy about it, and anyone who's circumcised should probably watch the documentary and really look at those parts where they describe the differences and what it's like to be natural. I'm probably not going to lose sleep about it, but it's definitely interesting. And for that reason, I consider this a pretty good episode. Very off-the-radar topic. Who's going to be talking about this kind of thing, if not THC, right? But all real glory goes to the guest. It is his film, and it's a documentary that's worth a watch. Even if it doesn't change your mind exactly, you should not take the decision so lightly that you can't dedicate 90 minutes in a follow-up conversation with your partner before pulling such a fragile trigger. And if you only heard the first free hour today, you probably think you heard enough, but that is not true, folks. There's always more, and I had a very specific place in mind when splitting this episode and crafting the pathway through the line of questioning, And that was just before the botched circumcision conversation. I reserve that for only the hardcore plus people, because what I saw in that documentary, in the segment on botches, fucked me up. And even a 1% risk of that is not worth doing it. And just to run through the other plus portion topics we covered, you will find a section on forced extraction. We also talked about the Dr. Winslow approach to circumcision, how it affects and changes sexual interactions. That was quite interesting. And of course, foreskin restoration techniques and the results, as well as the political situation. There's a lot more there than you might expect. So like I said, there are many more layers to this than might appear obvious at first. Kudos to Brendan for being so bold as to go there. And so that's the show. Tell your friends. We also have a joint session on the 20th at 7 p.m. Pacific. Do try to be there so you can tell me about all your weird experiences and local conspiracies and out there theories. Free for anyone to be a part of live and always archived for plus people. Sign up for plus, please, if you appreciate what I do. It's really all I ask in the grand scheme of things, and if you're already here, I can pretty much guarantee that you'll like it. As an added occasional bonus, I always do make guests a free Lifetime Plus account, and sometimes they do show up to engage with people in the Plus comments. Big thanks to Robert Bonomo for doing that recently. If you liked his appearance and talk on the tarot, do check out that Plus comment section to find him. And that pretty much does it for me. Next week, we're talking to one of the greats, a major horse in the THC stable, giving us his end-of-the-year assessment, and then we have a medical conspiracy-themed show aimed at the ladies to counterbalance today's for the guys. So stay tuned, or at least come back. I guess you're free to go do other things in the meantime, but until then, I've done my part. Your move, dick cutters. Your fucking move.
3: Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything, the 9 to 5 is trying to steal you, now don't that job seem silly? we were time.